Good day, nerds. This is Megan coming at you with another Cantina conversation. Today's episode features a chat with Christine Wells. We welcome her back for a second time. And we're talking about the Royal that comes out on September 12th. Uh, as always, another great chat with Christine. I really enjoyed um, ask, you know, finding out about her experiences uh, releasing the previous books. And just, you know, we kind of geek out a little bit about the research and about jewelry. Um, but either way, I'll let you guys get to it. Here is Christine. Today, we've got Christine Wells here. We're welcoming her back for a second time for a second Cantina conversation. We're talking about the Royal Windsor Secret this time that comes out on September 12th. Uh, Christine, good to see you again. Thanks for coming back. Um, I'm a sucker for historical fiction. I think it's so fascinating how, um, you know, you could, could tell that it was well researched and also by looking at the author's note, um, and your acknowledgments at the end, you know, the work shows and it's detailed. And so readers can also tell when they're reading this story, but then also get more details at the end. And I, I just love it. I'm kind of a dork about, about it. So I'm excited to talk to you more about it today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Megan. Yeah. Can you give like a, like a little synopsis summary of um, the book so that listeners can follow along? Sure. Uh, the Royal Windsor Secret is about Cleo Davenport. She's a young woman who comes to believe that she might be the secret illegitimate daughter of the King of England. And if you know anything about your history, this is in, in about 1936 when Edward VIII was uh, briefly on the throne before he abdicated to marry Wallace Simpson. And uh, Cleo has a dream. She wants to be a jewellery designer, but she also has this burning desire to find out who her real parents are. She was dropped off at the luxurious Shepherd's Hotel in Cairo as a baby and she, you know, she's been told she's an orphan, but there's always been these rumours that she is actually, you know, the princess and that she's actually the secret daughter of Edward VIII. So that that's how the story unfolds. Yeah, it's such an interesting and um and then yeah. um, the story spans, what, about 15 years, it seems like, almost? Something yeah, like that? In the, or like 10? In the end, um, because, well, for her story does, yeah, yeah. So, but there's a dual timeline, so it yeah. starts in World War One, really, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because I was trying to, like, keep track because, um, you know, you, <laughs> you give, you know, every chapter is like, okay, here's where we are. This is, like, where we are. And the time that we are, and so okay, what's going to go on next? Like, where are we? You know, and so it's like <laughs> when looking at the big picture, I'm like, oh, like how long did readers follow her? Um, you know, or her and Brody, you know, like because <laughs> yeah. well, it's I hard. Story, yeah, her story opens in about 1935 and finishes in around 1952. So yeah, yeah, it's a, it, it's sort of um this sweeping kind of. Uh, saga of her life really uh it's a it's sort of a longer time span than I've ever done before so that did have its challenges and uh hopefully the story sort of it flows even though you know you know some time has passed maybe you don't really need to know exactly what year it is but yeah the the, the dates are always set at the beginning of the chapter or yeah yeah I think mostly it's just because um you know, I was clutching onto that, the romantic part of her storyline. <laughs> and I was trying to track with uh, Brody too. her, like, 
childhood best friend slash, you know, love interests. And I love how, you know, I guess I don't see many stories where the female protagonist, like she's the one with the unrequited love, you know, she's wow. the one who's kind of chasing after him and, and not being shy about how, about her feelings towards him. And he's, he's the one that's kind of like hesitating and, and discouraging her and kind of like not, not really responding or not returning, not giving her any opening for that, even though you can sense the tension there. So that's kind of where I'm like, oh, well, I, I follow it through, okay, they're childhood best friends. And then they still like kind of continue this friendship, you know, slash connection throughout that whole time as well. And, and they all like, you know, she's hopping all over that side of the world you know, because she's like, she's going to, to Paris and she's going to London and back to Paris and then back to Cairo. She's like all over the place. But so is he because there's a war going on. And then there's like, you know, so he's he's got his own, uh, you know, motives and he's got his own to do list. Right. Like for lack of better words, he's he's got his own agenda. And so um, yeah. yeah, and so it's it's interesting to kind of follow both of theirs, but both of their kind of paths, but through her eyes and so it's hard for me to kind of not include Brody in in her her time span (laughs) sure well I mean Brody was he's a bit of a strong silent type in a way and he was uh from a good family but the his father was disgraced so he feels like he is not really Cleo's social equal and he doesn't have any money and in those days you really needed money to set up as husband and wife and uh, buy a house and have a family so he's struggling the whole way to do the right thing or what he perceives as the right thing and it it makes it even harder when she says oh and by the way I'm probably the illegitimate daughter of the king of England uh he's just going oh so so you're a princess now oh great uh that that's the journey he takes he's got to really discover himself and what he wants as well it's a real process of self-discovery for them both I think yeah I liked him as a character and I also wanted I also wanted to like just shake him and be like who cares just (laughs) just go for it it's easy for me to say because you know (laughs) you know our timelines are much different like our (laughs) the time that we're living in is much different than back then (laughs) yeah but but Cleo shakes him too she yeah she wants to be independent. She wants to earn her own money. So she doesn't even really understand the pride that is stopping him from just, you know, getting together. So, yeah. but, you know, that's not the only thing. Other things stop them. But Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> no, no like, you know, <laughs> like, you know, the Germans. <laughs> <laughs> So I kind of like tapping back into the research, how I said, um, you know, you can tell with all the details in the in the time period that, you know, it was just thoroughly researched, but historical fiction is your thing, right? Like that's, that's what you stick to, you know, you don't, you don't break what doesn't need fixing. You're great at it. You don't <laughs> just stick to what you're good at. And I love it. I really enjoyed this story. And um, so what, 
did you approach the research part of it like the same way as you did in your previous works or did you like find yourself you know like was it the same was it different did you try anything different did was there, was there anything even more fascinating that you learned because i know your one woman's war was also set in world war ii but smaller you know smaller time duration and so how yeah. how was this one with with that same process yeah it actually was quite different because Uh, I had a protagonist who was fictional. So from the start, I had more leeway to be creative with her story. And uh, One Woman's War was about Operation Mincemeat and Patty Bennett's uh, involvement in it. She was the secretary of Ian Fleming during the war, as you know. So uh, her really the timeline of that book was set in stone fairly much uh, because it was Operation Mincemeat, short time span, as you'd say. With The Royal Windsor Secret, it was more just drawing together all of these things that I'd been fascinated by over many years and putting them all together in a story. And and, and it was amazing that when I did it, there were just all these connections everywhere. So there was Shepherd's Hotel, which actually I proposed another story quite a while ago now and it never came to pass and then I just thought I really wanted to write about this amazing hotel in Cairo it was one of the first luxury hotels in the world Shepherds was a place where everybody who was anybody would come to stay they they would spend the European winter in Shepherds Hotel and it was everybody from European royalty to Winston Churchill to Rita Hayworth and the Aga Khan uh, Lawrence of Arabia would stay there and he'd dress up as a sheikh and then jump out the window when the, the press came to interview him because he <laughs> he wanted to escape from from all the attention. He was quite he was like this big celebrity what, at the time. What is a sheikh? Uh, it, it's uh, the sort of the the Egyptian or Arabian noble person, so very wealthy person with the um, head dress you know that okay because uh, i'm like, thinking like oh, he was, okay because i'm thinking like oh he was trying to hide but that doesn't seem like <laughs> that, <laughs> that doesn't seem like he could wear that <laughs> he blended <laughs> in, in in egypt <laughs> <laughs> so was yeah. uh, summers in egypt or egyptian summers or that was Too like hot. popular it was so was it like I, I don't know i've never been to that area of the world um what's so that's just popular because the weather's like great or like yeah, in to- winter. Winter. Okay. Oh, so, Egyptian yeah, winters. Yeah. Got it. So they would go to a warmer climate in winter. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 So um there was that aspect. And then uh there was the jewelry. I'd been reading a lot about Cartier and uh all of the history surrounding the foundation of that really famous jewelry firm. And then also I came across uh, Edward VIII's story when I was researching for One Woman's War, uh, this strange interlude they'd had in Lisbon before they went off to the Bahamas uh, during the war. He became governor of the Bahamas. And then there was this connection between him and Shepherd's Hotel in this mistress that he'd had in World War One. She had ended up traveling to Cairo often and she married an Egyptian 
more of that in the book. I won't spoil that. But uh, so so she became part of the story. It, you know, everything was in this melting pot. So there was all these were all these different aspects for me to research, which uh, I do I do draw in a lot of things in all of my books. But I think this has been the one that's had the most disparate research to do. Having said that, I um I, I got the illness that I shall not speak of. Oh uh, no! Last <laughs> and my memory was shot to pieces. I could not remember a piece of research from one week to the next. So every time I wrote a scene, I had to go over it again. And it was, I mean, I loved writing the book. I love the characters, (laughs) but that was. You got to experience it twice. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I know because there's so many, I imagine there were so many dots that you had to connect. And and that's such like an interesting you know, where you find these pieces and then you're like, oh, like there's something there. And that would be cool. Like, what if, what if there was this little, you know, this little missing piece that Mm. may or may not have turned out for, you know, to be anything. And so, yeah, it's like, I I imagine that (laughs) frustrating to to, like, you're making all these connections and then it's just a struggle no matter what. (laughs) (laughs) But, but jewelry, uh, you know, that was such a serendipitous, Thing, that I had all of these different women and they were all connected by jewellery because I'd already decided that uh, there was actually a jeweller who who sold antiques and things in the Shepherd's Hotel. So that had given me the idea to make Cleo want to design jewellery herself. Then you have Wallace Simpson who had you know, one of the most famous, significant collections of jewellery in the world. Also, most of her pieces, especially the sentimental ones that came from Edward VIII, you know, her engagement ring, all of that kind of thing, were from Cartier. And then you have Marguerite, who's the courtesan who had the affair early on with Edward VIII, and that was how she built her wealth, through the jewellery that men gave her because as a high-class courtesan, you weren't paid in cash. You were paid in jewellery. And so we have all these slightly different attitudes towards the jewellery that that permeate the book. So it really became a motif. I love that because I know it's like, personally, I don't I don't wear a lot of jewellery, but I'm still like, ooh. Like, <laughs> Like, I yeah. still am like, oh, I wouldn't, I kind of want that. Like, you know, and I don't, it, it's, I'm not sure, partially because I have kids, but I feel like any special occasion, I, you know, when I dress up, I like to add the jewelry that I have, like whatever will yeah. go well. Yes. But for the most part, I don't wear a lot aside from like my wedding and engagement ring. But yeah, and but I, I, I love that where it's, you kind of add that spotlight onto the jewelry where it's, it is such a significance and it transcends like generations and and centuries and continents and you know so much like history as and the times just like you can look at a piece of jewelry it's like i feel like you could look at you know the history of designs and jewelry and and materials and gems and all that and kind of see that evolution you know and then go across the world and do that same thing and like i i i thought that was like really cool how you added that as like that constant you know, string that's connecting 
um, all of this. And I love that Cleo was like, she was so headstrong and she was like, no, like I want to do this. And, and she was, you know, not, she was not afraid to kind of like be vulnerable about, about it. She was just like, no, can you please like look at and tell me kind of what sucks and what works? Like, she's like straight up, like, no, I need, I need you to tell me this. I can do you mind if I just watch you, you know? And like, I, I just love how headstrong she was and how determined she was. And no matter what, like, no matter what she went through, despite the fact that she was also still couldn't, couldn't get the fact that she was like, didn't know her parentage. She was trying to seek her parentage throughout that time too. Like she couldn't get, she couldn't ignore that. She couldn't get it out of her mind, but she still wanted to pursue that. And it's kind of a noble almost like she wanted, she just looked at it as the artistic side of it through creativity and to see what she could do and to see the personalities and, and, you know, see what works and what doesn't and all that. And so I, you know, I really enjoyed that part of it. Um, so how kind of tapping into that, like what, you know, with the whole jewelry part of it, like, like researching all of those brands and their histories and like, I don't know, where, where do you even start? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, there, there's plenty, there's actually a very good uh, history by one of the Cartiers whose name escapes me, but um, mm-hmm. it, wasn't, it wasn't too easy to find out some information. I did have trouble with Pierre Le Marchand, who was one of their premier designers, and he's really responsible for the uh, Panther design. They, they had had it going through, you know, pieces sometimes, but he really, he and Jean Toussaint, really brought that panther out for the Cartier. And if you know Cartier, that is their their iconic uh, piece of jewellery is the the panther bracelet. And mm. uh, he would actually go to uh, the zoo and study animals, you know, getting getting it really right about how they how their anatomy worked. It, and, you know, a lot of people would say, well, do you really need to do that to make jewellery? But that's why, you know, they've got this reticulated bracelet with the panther and it actually looks like it's just wrapping around your wrist. Uh, And so I I wish I could say that I uh, got to go and (laughs) buy the jewellery and and things like that, but it was really more just uh, looking at, you know, you can find his designs and things like that and and researching uh, things that had been written about the Cartiers. Yeah. No, that makes sense where it's kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I just didn't know where I feel like I would be overwhelmed if I even like, I don't even know where to start like, to look at that. But I guess if you focus on one brand, like one designer, then you kind of just go from there. And then yeah. like based in that region, I guess that's kind of like easy to pinpoint, right? Or easier. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that there are a lot of catalogs and people who have written about jewels. Um, there's a wonderful Antiques Roadshow jeweler, <laughs> Jeffrey Munn, and I follow him on Twitter and, you know, sometimes he even talks back to me. And, uh, yeah, Yay. so he's written a book about tiaras because, uh, of course, we've had the coronation. And, you know, that that's something that jewels mark in, in this book too is historical events because we have the big 
event of the coronation coming up and then, of course, the king abdicated before that, but the women still needed their t- tiaras for the new, you know, the, the new king was just substituted in. The coronation date was kept the same. Uh, so, so it was, it was Cartier and they knew about, um, Edward VIII's marriage to Wallace before anybody else did because he commissioned the engagement ring oh, there. Okay. And they had to keep that a secret. Ooh, how uh, juicy. <laughs> yeah. And of course, you know, in the war, this is the, the jewels, all the refugees, the emigres are coming in with jewelry as the thing that they, you know, of value mm. that they were able to rescue from their uh, war-torn countries so and and you've got less money around so you have to be more innovative with the jewels so so the jewelry as you said really tells the history as well yeah yeah that's so cool it's 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 little things like that where you don't realize can also be a part of the storytelling with those historical events like not just like, you know, it's almost like art in, in terms of like painting or, or illustrations, things like that. It's, you know, fashion, right? It's mm-hmm. like, you can tell like, you know, during the wartime, people had to be resourceful or they had to use certain materials for the war effort. So like, you know, you could tell like how some of those fashion trends shifted away or towards certain things. And I, I don't know, once you think about it, it's like, it's so, so fascinating and, and, it affected everyone, right? It affected everyone and everything. There was no like, you know, corner of life, people's life or society that was untouched by the world events and, and all that. So yeah, it, that's so cool. I, I love that. I love that jewelry was like, you know, and it was cool to read about how, you know, her thought process and how she was learning and how she was experimenting and stuff like that. Um, So when you wrote like One Woman's War and then like your other works, how did this experience, you kind of like, if could just expand on it like how did this experience kind of like differ if at all from your previous releases and like were that was there anything that you learned from before that you kind of carried on or maybe you carry on into each work that you do yeah absolutely uh when i first wrote sisters of the resistance uh it was the first time i'd ever used a real person as a character i'd had people come on as uh, as cameos just briefly before real people, but I'd never tried to get inside the mind of somebody real and, and, and to put them in a book more than just, you know, coming into a scene or, or as a cameo. So that was a real learning curve for me because I was so concerned because it was Catherine Dior, it was Christian Dior's sister, and she had been a resistance worker in um, the French resistance during World War II. She had been captured, tortured, sent to Father's book. You know, she really had a gruelling experience, and I didn't feel that it was right to use her as a character unless I Mm. was getting it right. And in the end, because there was not enough, I just didn't, there wasn't a lot of um, information about her. There was one detailed article. There was a book uh, that was written in French that I had to sort of painstakingly translate. Oh, uh, no. Do you know, uh, <laughs> so do you speak uh, French or? I, 
I can get by. So <laughs> yes, I, I managed to do that. Not don't know how successfully, but excuse me. I love um, it. Well, you know, it was only a page in this entire book. And I was searching for Catherine Dior, Catherine Dior. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I did have to read a lot that wasn't even relevant. But, you know, oh. there was so little about her. So I decided to make her not a point of view character and to use the two sisters uh, uh, of the title uh, as my main characters. But I still had her quite a lot. So I learned that. And then for One Woman's War, the protagonists are real people. And and so that was a real exercise in deciding how much do you fictionalise, how much do you need to put in. Uh, it, it's interesting because I, I had a trusted uh, novelist friend read it and she said, oh, you know, I think this is quite unlikely or something, and it would always be a real event or a real thing that that person did oh, no. and as you know, <laughs> you know real real life is unbelievable in a lot yeah. of ways and we'll yeah. see that in the royal windsor secret all of the weirdest strangest things that happen in that really happened and so how do you give the reader a great experience but also uh not stray too far from yeah like kind of believable is. right like yeah. yeah. So, so some things have to be modified a bit. Some things I keep and I just say, well, too bad that happened. I'm going to put that <laughs> in. Uh, but, but I think with Cleo, Cleo, I got to fictionalize a lot more because she's not real. There, mm-hmm. Marguerite is real. Obviously, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor are real. There are lots of real characters in that, but it's Cleo's story really basically so yeah uh, that was a little bit more freeing to be able to you know I was constrained by the timeline and when when things occurred but I could weave that story in amongst it yeah yeah I kind of, I found that interesting because I was thinking about that like because um the Duchess uh Wallace she a lot of you did incorporate a lot of hearsay, like a lot of the gossip, like what people say about her. But then also it's like, you know, you do include some of her dialogue and some of her actual like on the page appearances. So I was kind of curious as to how like, was that kind of like the you just kind of like took some liberties because obviously you've never met her in person, right? So you can't like <laughs> know no. or like kind of how to, or even anybody like the Kings also, they're, they're the would have been King. Was there anything special that, that went on in your brain or like how to, you know, anything you had to do with kind of like generate that dialogue to imagine like that their personalities would be that way or how they would interact with people. Cause you know, there's a point in the book, obviously we want to be spoiler free, but there's a point of the book where it's just like, it's kind of like, you know, and Cleo was like, really like you know and so um <laughs> and yes. so it's yeah it's so I, I just thought that was really interesting like how did um you know what kind of did you just kind of like take liberties into imagining the dialogue the personalities that would go with that uh, a lot of the dialogue is putting into words what is supposed to have happened so I think you might be thinking and I have told this story before so uh I you know maybe it's a spoiler I don't think it spoils anything in the plot 
but there was a story about Wallace who, uh, you know, the Germans had marched on Paris and the, the, the Windsors were living in the south of France at the, well, the Duke was supposed to be <laughs> stationed in Paris with the army, but he just kind of left because he was worried about Wallace and mm. went down to the south of France. They drove all the way into Spain and down to Portugal. Uh, and she had left behind, this is a true story, she had left behind her favourite swimsuit. And yeah, with yeah, that's what I'm the, talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So with all of the bombing in Europe and Britain on the brink of war and all of that going on, she says, I must get my swimsuit. And actually they got the Americans to send it in a diplomatic bag. And and I think that anecdote is very telling about yeah. how I wrote her character. Absolutely. Because, I, you know, in a lot of ways you can't help but have sympathy for her. I mean, I don't think she ever wanted to be married to Edward VIII. I think she was quite happy to be on the side and out of public view and then suddenly her life is turned upside down and everybody hates her and, you know, <laughs> it can't have been, it can't have been much fun. Because uh, she was an American too, right? Like that was yeah. also part of the big scandal. It was just like, uh, and then he just kind of said, "No, that's fine. Then we don't need to. I'm not interested." Kind of thing, being the in the direct line. Yeah, it was really that she was a divorcee. So, oh, okay, okay. He was the head of the church as King of England, and mm. even <laughs> despite the fact that the Church of England was actually formed because the king wanted to divorce his wife. <laughs> uh, you, you, as a descendant of Queen Victoria, they're not allowed to marry divorcees. That's just the way it was. So, yeah, uh, yeah, he had to either give her up or abdicate, and he abdicated. I do think that he probably didn't really want to be king anyway. I think it was a bit of a convenient excuse. But anyway, the the, the swimsuit incident informed the way I wrote about her. So a lot of the things that happened when they were in Portugal really did happen or, you know, almost everything. Uh, but of course I would not know. I mean, Cleo's fictional. So all of the dialogue exchanges with her did not happen. You know, it's, it's always a balancing act. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's so, that's wild, but it's like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's, I guess it's easy from our perspective to be like, dude, like read the room, read the world, right? <laughs> like this is not, <laughs> this is not, it's not important. You know, it's a freaking swimsuit, but, um, who knows that mindset of the people who've grown, grown up in that, those circumstances. But yeah, that's, that's kind of an interesting, just like little tidbit, uh, contrast to add to that story where, and also adds to Cleo's personality how readers perceive her because she's just like you kind of like throughout her story you kind of the reader kind of realizes how you know we're getting to know cleo and then she's also growing and like we're kind of watching her grow and the her experiences we're kind of following up with that and so it's like that was very telling not only for the reader but like for the for wallace but also for cleo too to see how she was like yeah how she was like straight up like 
like seriously like <laughs> like she she just had such a, a wide worldview because she was in her travels and she was even though she's an orphan i feel like she she almost she was just very fortunate into where she ended up even oh, if absolutely she, yeah, yeah yeah for sure <laughs> Um, yeah, and I, I think her upbringing also gave her less a less blinkered view of how things should be. She didn't really even understand that she should be dependent on a husband. That wasn't what her guardian did. And so, you know, it never occurred to her that she wouldn't have to earn her own money and make her own way. And really that makes her the perfect partner for Brody. But yeah. uh, he he just can't see it because he's traditional and he thinks he yeah. needs to look after his wife. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's just like you, sweet summer angel. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> but I love your term that you say the strong, silent type because he is like you know he doesn't shy away from danger and he is like passionate about causes and he's like ready to go you know fight and defend and and join the effort and poor Cleo and, and Serafina. And then, then they're like, you know, the married couples that they have become also their like life, their family friends, whatever you want to say. Um, they are terrified for him too. They know that like there's, there's no internet. They can only communicate via letters. They don't know what's going on. And so it's like, where's Brody? We don't know. Like <laughs> last year he was here, but that was two weeks ago. It was like, I don't know, something about like a, a real like rugged man who has like a soft, demeanor you know where he just like he was just like perfect for cleo and and she knew it and she couldn't i i loved how she was just unapologetically like in love with him and she wasn't afraid to say it she was like she even straight up said like i've always been in love with you like and she said she used the word dreadfully because she knew like she can't help it like she can't She's like, you, you know, my feelings for you are going to be the death of me kind of thing. Like, because, and then I love, like, like I always said before, like, I love how I don't see a lot of stories where it's the woman who feels that way and who's kind of like unapologetic, like, I'm in love with you and maintains that love. And she's not necessarily chasing him, um, which I think is really common with, with that. Like, on the other way, it's like the men are kind of chasing the women. She was just like, I, you know, this isn't all that I'm after. She just, it's like a part of what she wants. And it's a part of like something that her heart can't let go of. But it's also like, well, I'm all, she's also got her eye on the other prize. She's got her eye on her future, you know, monetary, like financially and professional goals and things like that. And that's what I loved about it too. You found that balance. It's in so kind of like switching back, like for, for Marguerite too. Like, um, I think I asked you this question the last time we talked where, Switching between the point of views, um, between Marguerite and Cleo and connecting those stories. But also, you know, you got to lead the reader on. You can't give everything away. But like, how, how was your experience with that? Was it kind of, cause kind of the same, like what you're already familiar with with switching in between, you know, different points of view or was it, was it more challenging this time around because of the longer time span? I think it, it, every book has had its challenges as far as the timeline has gone. I I think probably it's a bit clearer in this book that she's a very different character and she's got, you know, she's practically an antagonist really in the story. She's not su- usually readers expect the point of view character to be sympathetic and she's not necessarily, but I think it's important to show 
her journey and to have a bit of compassion for somebody who was pregnant at 15 and that really happened and had to have the baby and gets turned off from service because she's pregnant and then has to, you know, she, she, she had grit. She worked her way up from the streets to be um, a very wealthy woman in her own right. Uh, Yeah. And I love how you add that in like your author's note, because you said what I was thinking when I was getting to know Marguerite as a character. It's like, well, she's not, she's not really that great of a person. She does some really questionable things and horrible things, but it's also like, you, you can't help, but not justify, but it's like, understand it's like her upbringing and how, what she's had to deal with and what she's, you know, her experience is kind of like explain her outlook on life she can't help it she's she's always grown up worrying about the next step worrying about is she gonna have a place to sleep is she gonna have food is she gonna like she needs to find her next client you know and i really enjoyed that and i love how you added that at the end because it was like exactly personally what i was thinking i was like well marguerite like i don't really like her but i kind of like i i feel for her you know it's like i kind of understand um but it's you know at the same time it's like well poor cleo <laughs> yeah well I, I mean i found marguerite in real life to be a really fascinating study because she was so erratic uh and she had a really bad temper and she would do things that you just uh, just you know the the story of the the murder at the Savoy Hotel that she's involved yeah. in. I mean, it, you just you couldn't make that up. That was real, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, it was a bit of a bonkers kind of story. <laughs> I seem to be attracted to these sorts of <laughs> events, but uh, yeah, it. Um, I th- I think uh, well, hopefully she's a compelling character, even if she's not likable, and she's not. She doesn't make up her scenes. Don't make up the bulk of the story. It's really mm. clear. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Her uh, her parts are definitely important into like filling in those missing pieces for sure. It's just as a reader, I was impatient. I was like, "What is this?" Okay, I was like, "Wait," because <laughs> there's like a couple points where Brody, you know, or or not just Brody, but like I think someone was like gonna inform her like something like fill in fill her in and they would like switch to marguerite's point of view to like so the reader can kind of like see from marguerite's point of view and then it catches back to cleo it's like we're catching up with cleo like we're learning it with cleo and i love that so there was like there was parts where i was like okay like what (laughs) i was like okay we're back to marguerite what's going on (laughs) because it was yeah it was just kind of like it, it i don't know historical fiction like that i think it just adds like such an element the fact that she was like a real person and then do you kind of sprinkle that in? Cause I, I, you know, I, I liked how you did that with one woman's war too, where it was like Friedel, I think, or Fry. I don't know. How, right. I think I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think I had yeah, trouble pronouncing her name last time too. <laughs> no. uh, yeah. It's also just a dual POV where you kind of like add in to fill in the gaps on, you know, the other side of it adds to the, um, you know, the storytelling and the, in the engagement and all that. There's a couple more questions before we wrap up here. I'm going to throw this at you. What What advice do you think that Patty would give to Cleo? Ah, that is such a good question. My goodness. Because Patty was really 
matter of fact and absolutely sure of herself. And so, you know, maybe <laughs> she'd tell her to uh, stop whining and get on with it. <laughs> stop, stop mooning after Brody and go and find some some other man. <laughs> Go find Although, a, as you said, as you go said, find a Cleo. jeweler or like <laughs> yeah. Cleo didn't moon after Bodie. I mean, she didn't let let it stop her, but yeah, she always had that ache in her heart. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. I love that. Um well what advice would you give to Cleo and then to Brody? Ah, I would say yeah, follow your dreams. That's that's the most important thing. I think she did what I would I would say to any young girl is uh, men are all very well, but you need to look after yourself and be independent. And it's only when you are independent that you can really have uh, a full loving relationship, I believe. So uh, I would say that to her. And sorry, what was the other thing? Oh, to Brody. Oh, what what oh, advice Brody. Would, you, would you give to our, our lovable, strong, silent type? <laughs> <laughs> I'd say, uh, yeah, just stop worrying about the traditional way. She's not a traditional girl. Just go go for it. <laughs> yes. And we'll figure it out together. Yes. Oh, I love it. Because I, I don't know, I'm a sucker for that like romance too, but I think a lot of readers are where we just like that <laughs> slow burn or we like those tropes, right? We're like uh, enemies to lovers or fake dating or whatever, like whatever, you know, like close proximity. And, but I, I like, yeah, it's like a trope, but it's like they work for a reason, right? So like with her Brody, like every time they were together, like we were, were feeling, I was like, I was like just feeling for Cleo. I was like, come on, it's okay, girl. But don't worry about him. I was like, but, but like, I want to see it, but also don't worry about him. Like, <laughs> you know, it was like that, that little like uh, conflict as the reader personally. Cause I was like, I want more of them. I want to see where this goes. I want them, you know, I want that happy ending. And, but then I'm also like, you don't need him. Go do your thing. <laughs> well, you know, if, if, if it was right at the start, it wouldn't be a story, would it? You need some. Exactly. Exactly. I know. I, I love uh, asking um, authors that question because they're like, well, if I gave them advice at the beginning of the story, like if they listened to it, there would be no story. So it's like, <laughs> it's like you're absolutely right. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think um, we're all human and we need to make mistakes. <laughs> exactly. Kind of hopping off of that segue. Uh, what do you hope readers get out of this story? Well, I think it's really just... I mean, that sense of going for your independence, but also allowing room for love. And that's a compromise all of us have to learn how to make, I think. Uh, and, but as far as the experience, I just want them to have this sweeping adventure all along with Cleo and enjoy the romance of it. And the, the history, you know, is just, I always like the history to be just woven in I don't you know like it's just part of the story it's not it's not a history lesson so just in yeah (laughs) have an enjoyable experience I guess yeah yeah absolutely and I definitely got that out of it I mean I was personally I've, I've always been like an advocate for female independence and kind of like breaking the mold and 
you know, don't, don't feel tied down to that path that's expected of you. So I, Mm. I definitely feel that, but just at the end of the day, you want that you're not trying to teach them anything, right? You just hope that like, you're just telling a story and you're hoping that that story touches them. And also, yeah, you're not trying to educate, but it's like, that's part of it, right? Like the, the, the historical facts and just kind of exploring like what might have, what that might've been like. And I, I enjoy it. Like I said, I, I really, I, as the more historical fiction I read, the more I discover, I, I enjoy that genre. It's just really cool to kind of learn, you know, especially, I don't know, I feel like World War II, there's just so, so much out there in terms of like, uh, historical fiction and, mm. and just entertainment in general, like TV, film, all that. It's based on, some of those events because i feel like you know you could tell from the american side you could tell from the british side you could tell from the italian side you could tell from even like back in cairo they were dealing with their own shit like because they wanted to be independent from from britain right like so it's just so much sometimes it's overwhelming so i like like making it like when you make it entertaining it's it's all the better I always love reading. I tell people I always love reading books that make me feel like a little bit smarter when I'm done. So <laughs> <laughs> me too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, love that. I love learning about things I didn't know before, but in a very easy way and through the eyes of characters, I find it really, really great. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's wonderful. Don't, don't stop doing what you're doing. Uh <laughs> <I'm-> <laughs> Uh, speaking of which, uh, Christine Wells, what's next? Are you working on anything that you could talk about? Yes, I am. I'm working on a book that's titled at the moment, The Paris Gown. And it's about three friends in the 1950s Paris who all go and share a Dior gown together. So, <laughs> oh, um, almost like a sisterhood of the traveling pants, but sisterhood yeah, of the traveling like gown. That. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there'll be there'll be history in it too, but it's a bit of a fantasy as well. So yeah, it's okay. it's been fun to write. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, that's so fun. I love it. So, <laughs> Christine Wells, uh, are you where can we find you online and on social media? Uh you can contact me via my website, which is Christine wells.com I'm on Instagram and uh Facebook most often, so you'll find me there. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you so much. All right, Christine Wells, the Royal Windsor secret comes out on September 12th. Thank you so much. Always a wonderful chat with you. And like I said, like I'm a sucker for historical fiction. Don't stop doing what you're doing. You do it very well. Um, keep, you know, nerding out as we like to say and, and doing your research, doing your due diligence and going down all those black holes, you know, those, the, down the rabbit holes. But thank you so much and feel free to come back again whenever you've got something else you're working on. Oh, that's lovely. Thanks so much, Megan. It's been a great chat. And there you go. That was Christine Wells talking about the Royal Windsor secret that comes out on September 12th. Check out the show notes to see links on where to find her online and where to buy the book. Uh, follow us on social media, the Nerd Cantina and Cantina Book Club. Rate, review, subscribe. Check out my book reviews on thenerdcantina.com. If you have a book that you really like, go ahead and hop on over to Goodreads and Amazon and give them a rating and a review. It really does help the authors out when you guys do that. Um, and as always, thank you guys so much for listening.